WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. Uh, welcome again to Leadership Matters. This is our fourth season. Um, this is Tim Fredericks, uh, your co-host, along with my fellow co-host, uh, Fran Gavin, and we're very, very happy to be here tonight. Uh, in keeping with the tradition that we started four years ago with our doctoral students at Centenary University in the course Communication and Public Relations, we ask our students to um, take a show, take a topic, and curate it, and uh, we turn the show completely over to them. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to turn it over to uh, Brittany Hardy, who is going to introduce her fellow students and their very, very special guests this evening uh, with us on WNTI.org. Uh, uh, so Brittany, all yours. Hello world, and like, oh my gosh, now I'm freaking out, so sorry. Um, Hello world, thank you Dr. Frederick for the introduction and we wanted to thank Leadership Matters here on WNTI Radio for hosting us tonight. With the help of our special guest from Centenary University, we'll, we will be discussing a very serious topic, leadership. Please welcome President Bruce Murphy. We wanna thank you for being here with us tonight and the time that you're about to provide. My pleasure. President Bruce Murphy assumed the presidency of Centenary University on January 1st, 2020, being named Centenary University's 14th president. President Murphy previously served as president of Nichols State University in Louisiana from 2014 to 2017. President Murphy is also a U.S. Army veteran. Dr. Murphy retired with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. During his military career, he taught leadership courses at West Point and was vice president for academic affairs at the United States Air Force Air Academy in Alabama. Coming from here with such vast experience and background, we are proud to present President Bruce Murphy. Glad to be here. Good evening, Dr. Murphy. So we have a few questions for you about your path and leadership. So how was your background and experience prepared you to be a college president? Well, I don't know if anything really prepares you to be a college president, but uh, you know, their leadership uh, is kind of like leadership, and uh, they do trans uh, translate from one to the other. I, as was mentioned in the intro, I had a career in the uh, United States Army uh, over 23 years, and uh, I think I think that that helps you uh, prepare. But something that's interesting, and I never really realized it as I was going through all those my Army career, but I actually spent nine years of my 23 years on college campuses, either as a student, the Army sent me off to get a, had a, on a fellowship to get a graduate degree, uh, or as a faculty member, I taught at West Point uh, for four years, or as an administrator. My final assignment with the Army was as the professor of military science at Vanderbilt University. So uh, I, I guess I knew all that time that I would be wind up on a college campus sooner or later. Uh, and so it really did prepare me. So as I was going through the Army career and as an infantryman, you know, you, basically they could have you do just about anything. And I, uh, as I mentioned before, I didn't realize it, but it was it was sort of developing me uh, through that process uh, to be a, a university president. I got to see a variety of different uh, of a variety of different uh, settings and campuses. I got to see academic leaders work uh, as I was as I was developing and growing as a leader in in the uh, in my professional army career. So I, I think that that really helped me uh, and has has helped me to be uh, served me well to be a president. 
So you subconsciously knew beforehand that you were going to be a president with all your experience well, within know, higher I'm, ed. I don't know if I would go that far. You know, it's, it's kind of it's kind of incremental, just like most things. You know, you think you, you it's almost like your education. You know, did you say did you know you were going to be uh, pursuing a graduate degree? Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But but at, you know, when you start off, you you just you're doing the job, uh, the task in front of you, and those sort of build. And so in in higher education. Most people think of starting out as in the faculty, and I did. I started out as a faculty member, and then all of a sudden they ask you, maybe, would you like to be the department chair? Would you like to uh, to uh, be a uh, program director? Would you like to be a dean? Would you like to be a vice president? You know, it just kind of develops, uh, and you get to the point where you say, you ask those people that uh, you know that, that your mentors and other people that have uh, that have helped you along the way. Do you think I'm ready to be a president? And when they start all start saying yes, then you then you know it's time to start looking. Going back on that, during all those times, who did you end up looking up to for inspiration or as like a mentorship? Well, a, a lot of folks. I mean, it depends on your on your your place uh, in uh, your in, in your career. And you look to different people, and that that changes. It's, it, typically, it's not one person all, all the time, because as as particularly if if you're going from different different uh, locations as, as you frequently do in the military or different uh, even career paths, uh, th that, that changes. But I would say for, for being a university president, I've had a mentor that I've known for about 15 years, and that's Dr. Jack Hawkins. He's the chancellor of Troy University in Alabama, and uh, he, he's been there almost 30 years as the chancellor. Uh, when there's a very young man, and now he's he's probably in the in the in the twilight of his career. But he's he was always been very open with me, always been very helpful, always been very. He's somebody that I could I could go to with uh, with any kinds of questions that I had. I've gone to him in good times. I've gone to him in in tough times. Uh, and he's always he's always been there for me. And so I I try to do that with you know that's what you do. You try to you try to do the same thing for other folks. So when 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 people uh, ask me if uh, you know for assistance or help or whatever on things, I try to do the best I can because it's people. I know many many people have done that for me in the past. Yeah, it's always nice to have somebody to be able to go to, in either troubling times or um, to share success and just to be able to bounce ideas off of. So. Along with that, what is something that you wish somebody had told you during your career journey? Well, I, I, it's it's hard to hard to you know put your finger on on any one thing that somebody could have told you that made would have made it any easier or different. I think that that most situations are so different that there's not one set of advice that will apply. Uh, I mean, you can. You, you know, be true to yourself is something. I think I think I've I've tried to do that. Uh, uh, you know, always always uh, you know do your best is something that that, that people have, have told me, and 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 maybe they could have been you know a little bit more directive. But I I don't think I I look back on my career and I don't I, I can't really. Uh, identify, you know, something that that would have uh, had me do it any other way. Would have had me do it differently. The thing I I kind of learned on my own was when there are opportunities, you should take them. And and now that I'm now that I'm saying that, I will tell you one thing. Uh, when I when I graduated from college, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant uh, in the uh, in the infantry, and uh, and everybody told me you're going to go far, you're going to do great, and, and the place you need to go is the 82nd Airborne Division. And, and that's where you need to start off. And so I put in my my dream sheet for that's where I was going to go. And uh, I, I had done very well in my uh, in my ROTC work and all of that. And, uh, uh, and and so they just told me you don't even have to put a second assignment down there. Well, in the process, 
I met a I met the uh, uh, an alum of our of, of our uh, university of, of Cal Berkeley uh, who had come back to give the preside over uh, commencement and, and commissioning and he was going up to take over the uh, uh, to be the commanding general at uh, at Fort Lewis in Washington and he was going to start this new kind of uh, experimental uh, division and do all kinds of neat things. And he asked me, just, you know, said uh, to me, would you like to come up uh, with me and uh, work with me up at, uh, at uh, Fort Lewis? And I thought that my career was going to, I was going to start my career in the 82nd Airborne Division. And I said, sorry, General, I'd, I'd really like to, but I'm, I'm going to the 82nd Airborne Division. And of course, as luck would have it, I did not get my assignment in the 82nd Airborne Division. I was sent, uh, my first assignment was at Fort Ord, California in basic training. And I, I kind of kicked myself, uh, uh, you know, for, for not having uh, taken that, that uh, taken the risk, I guess, at the time and, and taken the, that opportunity. And so the advice that I wish I had had before that is some advice that I've given many others since then. And that is when, when you see an opportunity, don't be afraid to take it. Don't plan on something that you may or may not have. Uh, if, if, you're, if, if somebody's offering something to you like that thing I just described, they're probably doing it because they, they see something in you or they want to go, offer you an opportunity. And, and go ahead and don't be afraid to take that risk. Sometimes I find, you know, particularly with our students, that they say, well, I'm going to be this, this, or this, and, and, and they have it very well identified in their head. But that's really not how life works. You, you have to keep your mind open. Uh, and when an opportunity presents itself, take advantage of it. So thanks for helping me get back and remember that experience. <laughs> Yeah, of course. So as you're just talking about opportunities and risk, that's obviously a big factor um, when in any leadership role. So for you, what would you say the most important risk you took was and why? Um, well, I don't know if it's the most important risk. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to categorize as most important risk. I probably haven't taken my most important risk yet. But um, I would say I had, uh, I had retired from the, uh, from the Army, and I, I was on my way in higher education, and I started out as a faculty member and then went up to a program director and so forth, and I was a dean of a business school. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I had applied for a, a position at uh, just because somebody – you showed it to me uh, at, at uh, the Air, Univer Air Force's Air University. And I, you know, if you're an Army person, you don't really, you know, have that much to do with the Air Force. Um, and, and so you have a certain feeling of, or understandings about them. But I had applied for a position, and I didn't get it. And, uh, and so uh, I was just going about my business and doing my job as the dean. And it was about a year and a half later, I got a call from, uh, from the Air Force, and they said, are you still interested in that position? And I said, remind me what it was. And, and so uh, they, they, they explained it. It was, uh, it was being a civilian, uh, not, not, a, not a military member, but a, a Department of the Air Force civilian, senior civilian, senior executive civilian, in charge of their education, the, the chief academic officer at Air University, which oversees all of the uh, professional education for the Air Force. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I was kind of a little hesitant and uh, didn't know if I should do it. And I had never thought of going back with the military. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and I said, well, I'll, I'll go down and see what they have to say. So I flew down. I was interviewed by three people. One of them was Dr. Jack Hawkins, by the way. 
Um, and uh, and uh, and on the spot, they they said, well, they offered me the position, and uh, it really took me by surprise. And I uh, and I kind of maybe I remembered that earlier experience, and and I I said yes. Uh, Gene and I moved uh, down there, and uh, it was uh, I, I really enjoyed that experience. I got to learn a lot. I actually spent more time there than any other place I've ever been professionally in in any one location, uh, and it really helped me to. Uh, kind of solidify uh, what my uh, my understanding of of higher education was within that fr com more comfortable framework of the military, and so I was trying to to uh, to lead that institution to be more like a a university. That was kind of my goal to do it, and it's kind of my charge to do it, uh, and at the same time understand because. Uh, you know, it, 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 it really takes two different mindsets, and that was a that was a perfect place where those two came together. So all of the things that we uh, concern ourselves with in 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 at, at a university, the accreditation and faculty uh, preparation and uh, and uh, 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 shared governance and all of those things that you wouldn't think of. Uh, being in a military mindset, that was my job to to kind of make sure that we we did that and to and to add new degree programs and and all kinds of things. And it was uh, it was a it was a, a risk for me because it was unsure territory. And I thought my career was going a different direction. I thought my career was going to be on the civilian side in higher education, and it wound up coming back there. So I mean, I couldn't have been uh, you know more delighted that that happened. And uh, uh, it 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 it, taught, it taught me that again, don't be afraid. Uh, to take that risk, uh, and uh, you know, great things can happen. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that that risk that you took with your family turned out to be such a positive impact on your life at that time. So, um, as you continue to grow, um, how do you continue to grow as a leader and develop um, yourself as a leadership within the industry? Well, it, and I think leaders are, are always. Uh, you always have to be observant. I always look at, I have a leadership perspective. Uh, I mean, that probably comes from my, my background in education and, uh, and everything else and, uh, and experiences that I've had. But, but you know, uh, when I, I observe leaders all the time and, and I try to ask myself, um, what are they doing? Would I do it that way? Would I do it a different way? Uh, you know, how, how, how are they communicating? How are they uh, identifying what the, what the tasks are, what the challenges are? Uh, and, and that applies to people in the, in the news. It applies to people you, you, you see. It applies to your colleagues. Uh, it applies, to, uh, you know, all over the place. And uh, I, I try not to judge. In other words, say that's good, that's bad or whatever. But I ask the question, what, what impact uh, is that would that leader uh, be having? When I, when I read books, uh, you know, about, about leadership or, or even not not about leadership, but about almost anything. You know, I try to analyze it from that leadership perspective. That leader's job is is to uh, is to influence human behavior uh, in order to accomplish goals that that uh, that the leader sets out. Uh, and, and so, how are they doing that? Is this is this going to further those goals, or is this going to hinder those goals? Uh, what is the impact of that influence attempt? Uh, going to be, and that's uh, that's what I do. I, I think what that helps me do is to understand how I would act in a similar situation, or how how will that prepare me to act in a in a different situation? And so, uh, you know, it's, it's it's that idea of of being a a, uh, a having critical analysis of the leadership process uh, and seeing that. And you know, I was uh, when when I taught at West Point many years ago. We you know really had to understand 
uh, a leadership framework. We had to communicate that, uh, and that stuck with me the whole time. And and I, uh, it, it's true. I think for for most uh, most academics that you in your discipline you 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 uh, uh, take on that that those habits of thought, uh, and you you tend to apply them not only to your academic work but to your professional pra practice and your professional life as well. So as we wrap up your path to becoming a leader in the industry, how would you describe your leadership style? Well, uh, I, I try not to talk about leadership style. I try to avoid that the term style uh, because that that's, tends to say that you're you know either you're participative or you're authoritative or you're whatever. I find that that you have to your style has to change depending on what the situation is, depending on what the you know who you're working with, depending on what the task is. There's so many different factors that in some sometimes you know sometimes. You, you have to be fairly autocratic. Sometimes you have to be fairly directive. Uh, at, at other times, you know, if it's an un, unclear situation or, or that we haven't done it before, you know, you open yourself up and, and say, what, what does everybody think? You have to be a, much more participative. So uh, I, I, I try not to talk about style. Yes, you know, we, we, we all want to be benevolent leaders. We all want to be, uh, you know, uh, mission accomplished and driven leaders and, and all that kind of stuff. But I, I try to shy away from the term uh, leadership style because I, I find that it, it it tends to put put you in a box and, and you've got you to be effective you've got to come out of that box frequently. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point there. Well, this is probably a good time for us to take a break. Um, we've you've been listening to uh, Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, and we will be right back. And welcome back to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org. This evening, here in the studio, we are um, pleased to have three doctoral students with us and uh, the president of Centenary University, uh, Dr. Bruce Murphy. And we are ready uh, to have the second segment, which is going to be moderated by doctoral student uh, Jason Galeski. So, Jason, take it away. Thank you. Good evening, Dr. Murphy. I have a few questions and topics I'd like to discuss regarding leadership. As a former infantryman myself, I value and appreciate your experience and wisdom, sir. So thank you for your time. Was there a time when you first remember recognizing that you wanted to uh, you know, be a leader or, uh, or, or become a leader? Uh, I don't know, uh, Jason, if it was if it was truly conscious that way, uh, but I I was uh, I, you know, really early on, I was I was in uh, in scouting, and uh, in, in scouting is uh, there's a lot of opportunities for leadership. Uh, there are, you know, it's broken up into small groups, small units, uh, and it, they have, you know, you have tasks to do, and you know, camping things to organize, and hikes to organize. So you watch the older. Uh, scouts do that, and then you you sort of say, "I want to do that too. I want to be like that." And you and you do that. So I've had a lot of experience in scouting in my my early, uh, really early developmental uh, years, and uh, it seemed like it seemed like it, I kept falling into leadership positions. I remember this is almost I was we were going to a, to a to a, a, a way to a jamboree. So we they put a bunch of folks from different organizations together that really didn't know each other very well. And uh, I had, for some reason, I can't remember what it was, but I had to leave the room. I left the room, I came back, and this is a, this is a classic story. And I was, I was, they selected me as the leader. So, uh, you know, so don't never leave the room if you don't want to be selected as a leader. But that continued. And when I went to college, again, in, in, in ROTC, I had 
I had success, and I, I was the I was made the uh, uh, the cadet colonel at the, of the of the ROTC uh, brigade at, at Berkeley. And at the same time, I was uh, you know I was experimenting on where to live, and I I, I, I it was my senior year, and I I, I decided to, to pledge a fraternity. I pledged a fraternity. I got in, and they elected me president. So it just seemed that that was that kept. Uh, you know, that, that kept happening. And so very early on, I, I felt that I was very, I guess, comfortable uh, in, in leadership positions and uh, not necessarily not necessarily ones where I was uh, appointed, uh, but ones where I was uh, elected or selected. Uh, and, uh, and, and and it just felt comfortable for me. So I would say it came from my youth uh, and uh, uh, it, it followed me thereafter. Thank you. Thank you. Um, how do you think your experiences uh, in the Army have shaped your philosophy as a leader? Well, as you know, there's there's certain things that are that that, that just become you know part of the way you you act and the part of the, part of your whole mentality. And 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 maybe the first one is is that the notion of of the mission focus that that you know you're there for a reason that you know that it's it's bigger than you and you know that this organization whatever it is whether it's a squad or a platoon. Or, or a department or, or a university that it, that it, it, it exists to accomplish certain things and that you are there either as a member of that organization or as the leader of that organization to ensure that that mission gets accomplished. And so you put that, you know, you put that first and that's, that's, uh, it, it, you derive that, that sense of duty that you, you would make sacrifices that you would uh, you know, it help the the people grow into that. Uh, that you would uh, do things to make sure that that the the mission is accomplished. So that that part of it. And I'll tell you, I had a really interesting kind of a change, not a change in philosophy, but a, a better understanding. You know, civilians look at the military as the military, but when you're when you're in the military, you you feel a difference between the branches. And I had the opportunity to work many years with with the army, and then. Kind of do a complete transfer and work with the Air Force, uh, and and so I, that there's in terms of a, uh, a, a philosophy, I would say that that you know we in the Army they used to say uh, uh, mission first, people always, and that was kind of kind of the way to to touch all bases. In the Air Force, I would say they 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 almost switch it around that they say take care of the people and the mission will take care of itself. And, and I don't know if I totally believe that, having my army roots, but but I but I understand it. And sometimes I'll find myself, you know, people will say, "Can I, you know, can I? I need to take off a little bit of time to do this or that or whatever." And and my army side is telling me, "No, we got we got stuff to do." But my air force side tells me, "Yeah, go ahead, because that'll that'll you know regenerate you. That'll get, you know make." Uh, help you take care of the things you got to take care of, and so I found that 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 balance, which I guess I, another one of those things I never would have thought about, but in but later on looking at that, I, I hear those two voices talking. Understood, sir. I have uh, <laughs> friends that serve in the Air Force that inform me that it is a different mindset and philosophy and uh, a different way of life. So I can appreciate your opinion. Um, you know, what would you what would you be able to describe? Can you describe? what you believe makes a leader a better leader? I'll reflect on a, a, an experience that I had very similar to this. Uh, when I was at West Point, I was, I was kind of one of the junior folks in my department. I was, I think I was a captain. 
uh, at that time. And uh, and I got one of the duties that I got, which actually turned out to be a really fantastic opportunity, was uh, we at West Point, they have a lot of very senior leaders come, generals and ambassadors and dignitaries come by. And we had that we were in the in the in the behavioral science and leadership department. And we had a we had a series, we had a program where we would interview them. We'd go down to the TV studio. There's a TV studio right in the same uh, building that we lived in, and Thayer Hall. And and uh, it had a TV studio with all the stuff, you know, cameras and backgrounds and green screens and all that kind of junk. And and we, they had just had two chairs. And I got to interview all, uh, many, many, many of these, these uh, senior leaders. And it was real interesting, and I learned a lot and all that. But I'll never forget one, and that was General Cavazos. General Cavazos was a four-star general. Uh, he was had I, I can't remember if he was just going to or just coming back from uh, commanding uh, Korea, com the commanding Korea. Uh, he was the the senior and the first uh, first four-star, and I I want to say the first uh, uh, Latino general officer. He said something that that stuck with me this whole time, and he said, "There's three kinds of leaders." He says, "There's bad leaders." And we know who the bad leaders are. They're into it for their own self-aggrandizement. They're into it to maybe, you know, make money or to have advantage or privilege or something. And everybody knows it. And everybody knows they're bad leaders. He said, and then there's good leaders. And the good leaders come in and they get the mission accomplished and they take care of the troops and they, they do all that stuff. And they have a very successful time as in, in tenure as, as a leader. And they get a lot of accolades and all that kind of stuff. And that's fantastic. And then he said, there's great leaders. And he said, the great leaders don't make so much noise. The great leaders don't get all those accolades. The great leaders, you know, maybe never get acknowledged for what they do. But as a result of their having been there, that organization and the people in that organization are much better than they were before. You know, that really stuck with me. It, I, and it, it caused me to, to think about it uh, this so many years later, all the time. And I remember one time uh, I was being interviewed for a presidency and uh, and the question was asked, what do you hope your uh, legacy will be in five years? And I, for some reason, I probably shouldn't have said this, but I did because I was thinking of General Cavazos's words. I said, I don't want to have a legacy. I, I don't want people to say, you know, this was Bruce Murphy's time or Bruce Murphy did a great job or look what he did. I want them to say, aren't we better? And if they never mention my name again, that's fine with me, because that means that I have accomplished that goal of doing that third level of leadership. It's an interesting point, sir. Something to ponder. Um, as the president here at Centenary University, what are your expectations of the leaders working here uh, in the administration and in different departments? Well, my expectations are that they will take you know, that the leadership responsibilities that they have seriously. First of all, that they'll understand that they're leaders. I find that a lot of people don't don't call themselves leaders. I think I think they are. I, I know they are. And, and so that I would hope that they take those responsibilities seriously, that they will uh, that they will take care of the, the people that they work with, uh, that they will uh, communicate the things that that at the you know, sometimes uh, you know you, when you're when you're uh, when you're communicating, uh, when you think you're communicating, the word never gets too far. Uh, and uh, it, but but they will communicate the things that that we decide or talk about uh, at, at the senior level, and that will flow down through the ranks, and 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 it will and, and people will understand that, uh, and, and that uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, 
from the president down uh, all the time, that it can be, you know, other ways as well. And that when there are concerns, uh, legitimate concerns that people have, that those will flow up to me. So it's a, you know, it's a two-way, it's a two-way uh, street. And and uh, and so I hope that I hope that 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 all the leaders will uh, that we have will 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 be engaged and active in that way. Okay. Um... Can you speak to uh, some of the similar challenges facing an army colonel and uh, a university president in, in uh, today's day and age? Well, I think, I think first of all, understand the mission. I mean, anytime you go into an organization, whether it's, a, again, a, a platoon, a, a company, a battalion, or, or, a, uh, or a university, uh, first thing is to understand the mission. What is our mission? What are we, why do we exist? What are we here for? What do we do day in and day out? To understand that and, and, to, and to understand how do we do that? What are the, what are the levers uh, that, the, uh, that, that the leaders at various lever, levels can, uh, can exercise and, and pull to, to in, ensure that we continue to, uh, to accomplish uh, the mission? And I, you know, when I, I, I've used a, a kind of a, a set of, uh, uh, a set of rubrics of, of, of the, the hierarchy of, of leadership intent. And, and I've brought that here and we've, we've, we've talked to it starts with a vision. What do we want to be? Where, where do we want to, where do we see the uh, Centenary University uh, in the future? What is a, what is a great hope held in common? What is, what is our, uh, you know, where, where do we want to strive to be? And we, we talk about, you know, becoming the, uh, the intellectual, uh, and and the uh, the economic and the and the cultural heart of the Skylands region, and we know we're not there yet. But but if you think about that, if everybody in the institution, if everybody in the organization really felt that that's where we want to be, we wouldn't need rules and regulations and and all kinds of other because everybody do the right thing, knowing that that's where we want to be. So I think that that's that's you know get the big picture and then enable folks uh, the ability to uh, uh, to do that. And that that that. That's the same, you know, whether whether it's in the civilian side, uh, educational side, military side, or whatever. Can you expand on your points regarding uh, the development of the university, and you know, where, where do you see our university progressing? To you know, let, let's call it a five-year timeline. Well, I mean, I, I I really I really believe in that that vision. We when I first got here, we we got a whole bunch of people in a room uh, back when we could get a whole bunch of people in a room. I think we had about forty-five or fifty people. Uh, and, and we we talked about these things, and we talked about you know what should the uh, what would the uh, what would it look like, and, and that vision. I think that is a noble vision. You know, as it, the way a vision works is, you never get there because as soon as you get close to it, it's like the speed of a speed of light. You know, as soon as you get close to it, it's it, it you have to push it out further because it's it's got to be it's got to be a future desired end state. Uh, you, you never say, "Hey, we achieved our vision." You never achieve your vision. You change it and you move forward. So, so that's what we want to do. So, how do we do that? Well, uh, academically and, uh, and intellectually, we need to have we need to have robust programs. We need to have programs that where we can uh, we, where we can uh, create and disseminate knowledge. Uh, and, uh, and and your program is one of the places where we're doing that. Uh, we need to we need to have uh, uh, appeal to. Uh, to, to students that, that may not have thought of, of Centenary before. So we're looking at, right now, as we speak, we've got six um, computer science students, six students that are engaged, uh, have a, are majoring in computer science. We didn't even have that a year ago. Okay, so we've, we've, added, we've added things that we think will help us to move towards that vision. And that's, that, I mean, that's kind of what we're, we're doing. We're gonna have robust programs 
that 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 attract uh, students that that make this uh, uh, this great educational dream uh, more affordable, more accessible. Uh, and uh, you know, we're we're going to at the same time, you know, try to do all the other things that that make the university a very vibrant and a very living uh, uh, organism. Thank you. Um, now, a little a little bit uh, off of the uh, the topic of leadership within uh, within the. Uh, the academic world, uh, but if you could sit down with uh, three other lead leaders in history, past, present, who, who would they be, and why would you like to speak with them? Well, I was I was asked a sort of a similar question when when I was uh, interviewing for this position, and this was a public forum, so anybody that was there will remember what I said. I probably won't remember what I said, but I said it, uh, and I I. I came up with this just kind of on the spot, but I, I, I talked about the three Georges, uh, and, and the first is George Washington. And, uh, and the reason for, for George Washington, when I was at, at West Point, I, I, I lived near New London, uh, not uh, New Britain, and, and that's they have a sign right when you come off of the interstate that says where Washington refused the crown. His troops wanted to give him a crown. They wanted to make George Washington king after they had won the Revolutionary War. And Washington was was uh, so understanding of his role and what they wanted to do and what the vision uh, of the Continental Army was that he said no. He wasn't going to he wasn't going to take a crown. That that wasn't. We didn't fight this war against a monarchy just to establish another monarchy. And so I mean, it really it really. It made an impact on me, and I'd like to talk to him about that, and also about the fact how he didn't understand. You know, he was the first president. He didn't know how many uh, how many uh, terms he could run. He could probably still be president if he wanted to, but but he said no, two's enough, and he set the tone for the rest of the, for the rest of uh, of the presidents to to follow. He figured it out as he went along. So I really respect that. The second George is George Jolwin. George Jolwin was uh, was one of my again one of my mentors. He, he was my mentor uh, in the Third Armored Division as the division commander. I worked for him as a two star, and then when he took Fifth Corps, I worked for him as a three star. Uh, and then when he took uh, Southern Command before he was the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, I worked for him as a when he was a four star. Uh, and and I he used to have a saying. He used to say, you know, make the scrimmage tougher than the game. So so you know, I appreciate that, sir. In your training, in your tra and he was he was on the last uh, undefeated, uh, 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 the last undefeated uh, West Point football team. By the way, that's and so he he talked a lot about in those kinds of terms. But he he just uh, he 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 was the kind of leader. Uh, and he's still alive, but he was the kind of leader that that we used we used to call a, 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 he had referent power. You referred to him. You wouldn't want to you, you you wanted to do the right thing, not because you were afraid of what might happen or this or that, because you didn't want to let him down. That right. was the uh, he was a, he was a, a combat leader in Vietnam. He uh, he uh, uh, had, was awarded two silver stars. He uh, uh, came back and he worked for uh, uh, Al Haig in the White House and the Nixon White House. He went through tremendous, he had tremendous political, tremendous military experiences. And I just, I just, I would never miss an opportunity to talk to him. And the third George is my dad, George Murphy. And, and, uh, and he, uh, what I respect about him was he came from really uh, very, you know, dirt poor background, south side of Pittsburgh, uh, dead end kid. He was running around with the wrong crowd and everything like that. 
And then somebody had faith in him. Somebody, he was, he was in a kind of a, a, a home and somebody uh, uh, had him go down to uh, University of Pittsburgh uh, and, and they paid his way and he was able to, to complete college. Uh, after the, after uh, uh, World War II, he came back and under the GI Bill, he went to, to Pitt and got his master's degree, his uh, PhD, and became a, uh, eventually became a, an aerospace uh, engineer uh, and uh, wrote books and traveled the world and all kinds of stuff. And, and here's this guy that had this, this background that he never should have done that, but through education, uh, through somebody helping him get that education, he was able to do that. And the other thing, he was, uh, you know, I, I, I hate to say it, but he was kind of a sad sack. He, he never bragged. I mean, he, he always talked about how poorly he did in the Army. He said they sent him overseas and they, he had never been to the rifle range and, and, and all this stuff. And, 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 and so in scouting, he, he knew that this was good for us, for, for me and my brother. And so he, he, he went out there and I, it was totally, you know, he was out there. Well, all the other guys were hunters and campers and stuff. All the other dads, he wasn't. He went out there and he had a, he wore a tie with his scout uniform, scouter uniform and stuff. And, and I just really respected the fact that he came out of his comfort zone because he knew this was something that was good for his kids and and for the other kids as well. And I really respected that. So that's my those are the three Georges that I would I would I would never turn down an opportunity uh, to uh, to sit down and, and chat with uh, any one of them. And that's a wonderful way for us to uh, end this segment. And uh, you uh, have been listening to WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. This is Leadership Matters. We will be right back. And welcome back to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. I'm Tim Fredericks, co-host, along with my co-host, Fran Gavin. And uh, we are entering the final segment of our program this evening, uh, being curated by three of our doctoral students. And it's my pleasure to introduce our, our final doctoral student, uh, who will continue the conversation with Dr. Murphy, and that is uh, Carrie Mullins. Carrie? Good evening. Dr. Murphy assumed the presidency of Centenary University just weeks before the COVID-19 pandemic began its devastating effect on our world and halted in-person instruction on our nation's college and university campuses. Therefore, our next segment will be focused on leadership through crisis. So to begin, Dr. Murphy, what would you say is the greatest difference between good leadership and crisis leadership? Well, I don't. I don't think there's necessarily a contradiction between those. I, that, that I think that you can have good leadership and bad leadership in a crisis, and you can have you know good leadership otherwise. I think that what a crisis does is it just brings so many more things into focus. It raises the stakes. Uh, it, it really depends on the crisis. I mean, crisis leadership is not a new term that's been around for a long time. Uh, I think one of the things you need to look at is is what is the scope of the of the crisis. Uh, you know, leaders, you know, in, in any organization can have a crisis uh, of, uh, of uh, you know, financial crisis. You can have a, you can have a, a, a moral crisis. You can have a, a, a physical crisis where, uh, you know, fires or, or, or things like that, that happen. And it's, and, and that's, you know, applies locally. We right now have, have uh, by the very definition, a pandemic is a worldwide crisis. So this is something that, in one respect, uh, is is uh, you know, you know, very threatening. But at this, at the other time, everybody's in it. So it's it's uh, you know, most of the time when you're in a crisis, you can't, you don't have meetings of all your your peers, of uh, all the university presidents in an area get together with the same thing because everybody's different. But in this case, we did. 
Um, and, and, and maybe, uh, you know, one of the one of the things that uh, that I think of uh, a, a characteristic of, of good leadership in a crisis is uh, is 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 the uh, you know the Rudyard Kipling uh, poem if uh, and just the, just the way it starts off and it, it, they, he talks about if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you and if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too you know I think about that and and so that's kind of uh, you know what you think of your job as a leader in a crisis is to keep your head. Uh, because a lot of other people are not going to be keeping theirs. And so, uh, you know, that, that's, that's uh, I, I think, uh, one of the characteristics that, that uh, you need to have uh, in a crisis is to be able to not let it, uh, not let it overcome you. You have a, a, that great responsibility that a lot of people are going to be looking to you for support and leadership and, uh, and, and, and what to do next. Thank you. Well said. How does a leader prepare for a crisis? Well, I mean, I think in one respect, you're, you could never fully prepare for a crisis uh, or it wouldn't be a crisis, right? I mean, if you were fully prepared for it, uh, it'd be business as usual. But I think one of the ways you can do that is to have contingency plans. And I know we have plans for a lot of different things. We didn't have a plan for a COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, but we had plans for how do we react uh, in in other kinds of uh, health uh, situations and and uh, and uh, epidemics and, and and things. So uh, so that that framework is there. But I think that's that's probably the best way. The other way you, that that you can help is to is to establish uh, good communication networks, establish uh, you know good ways of of of, of doing things that. That will that are robust enough to be uh, to survive any kind of uh, of upheaval or crisis that that, that may come along, um, and 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 I think that that uh, you're not going to be able to anticipate everything, but if you if you if you do that, you, you know, and we've seen that in other examples such as you know active shooter situations or uh, or uh, disaster situations or whatever, that you do some planning, you do some tabletop exercises. You do that kind of thing uh, routinely, uh, and then and then when a crisis uh, does happen, at least you know who to talk to. At least you know uh, who get, can get some things done, and you've asked some of those questions ahead of time. Uh, you, you you know I think in the future everybody's going to think about stuff like PP uh, uh, PPE and and uh, uh, you know how do we uh, do testing and things like that that we never thought about too much before. Agreed. And you mentioned communication as, as so important during a crisis. What would you say are the key factors to an effective communication plan when you're dealing with a crisis? Well, first of all, early and often, <laughs> to the extent you can. Um, I, I, did, uh, I did a number of uh, videos, which is, you know, kind of a, a new trick for me. But uh, but uh, I, I and I never realized. I thought we were. I'm just making these videos and and they're just. I don't know. I didn't know what was happening to it. But I've had a lot of students uh, come back and others come back and say, "Boy, your 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 video. I really liked that. I liked your video of this and that." And, and so it, it reinforced to me that that was an important thing to do. Uh, they they want to see they want to see leaders. I remember uh, I remember. Uh, a number of years ago, I was talking to a to a president. I ha I wasn't a president yet, but I was talking to a president 
who had a, 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 a college and they were in the area of those threatened sometimes by by hurricanes and disasters and stuff. And, and she said that that one of the things that she found out the hard way was that she had when the emergency messages went out, it had to be her voice because the students and the faculty, other people really didn't believe it was real unless they could hear her. So she they took the time to record her voice on, on those messages so that. Uh, so that they would say, that's that's uh, that's us. That's the, that's our leader, and that's uh, we have to go. So so it has to be uh, it has to be out there early, I think, and it has to be as as clear and as 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 concise uh, as possible. Clarity is what you want in these situations because there's so much confusion. Uh, you know what's going on? Where is it happening? Who does it affect? Um, and 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 people in those situations, they want clarity. They 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 want it simple. Uh, many times, in spite of wherever they are uh, in any other kind of, they might be very sophisticated in this area or that area. But it, when the crisis hits, they want kind of to be told, "You need to go here. You need to do it now," and so on. I was I was president uh, of a university in uh, in Louisiana, and hurricanes was we did have routinely practiced uh, for hurricanes and drills and so forth and what to do. And you just had very clear messaging about different stages, different phases. When do we enter that? What what triggers the stage? What goes to that? And we tried to get that out. We did tabletop exercises and tried to get that out to as many people as possible because we knew that if we did that, that people could handle it. It was, uh, it was, it was something that could be anticipated. Fortunately, it was something that you knew at least you had at least a couple of days notice of. Sometimes you had a lot of notice of. Uh, it, it, it's not like a tornado that 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 hits out of nowhere, but it, but uh, we were able to to plan those. So I think those are those are all important things for communications during the crisis. That's great. In, in addition to communication, what would you say are the other top priorities for a leader to focus on during a crisis? Well, I think you know the the whole uh, what what happens, and I think what's what's happened during this this. Uh, uh, this pandemic is that um, leaders have, you know, there's leaders do two things really. There's the leadership stuff, which is the process, as I said before, the process of uh, uh, of influencing human behavior. But then there's the management side, and the management side is the process of influencing non-human behavior, like schedules and inventories and and uh, calendars and rosters and stuff like that. And it's not two different people. It's just two different processes that we do. So sometimes you do more leadership and sometimes you do more management. I think what's happened in the pandemic is that that management side has swelled, that we tend there's a tendency to do uh, more of the management. And, and that leads to, uh, you know, that that leads to stuff. There's a, these feelings of isolation uh, that we're we're alone. That our campus is alone, or my office is alone, or I am alone, uh, and 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 we want to protect. We want to protect what we have. We want to avoid loss. That we. Uh, how can we do that? And so we hoard toilet paper, and we you know we try to get more uh, test strips than the other school, or we try to do other kinds of things that are probably dysfunctional. Um, and 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 we 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 want us. We want to get. Uh, we want to get validation or social proof from somebody else before we go ahead and, and, and take those steps. Uh, and, you know, when, when, when we were going through these various stages, well, we go, well, what's the other schools doing? What are they doing? What are these doing? And so sometimes that has a, a negative 
uh, aspect of, of delaying some of those decisions that people are are desperately waiting to uh, waiting to hear. Uh, and and so we 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 create uh, irrelevant urgencies. We create we start we do things that we weren't doing before. I, I have found myself asking myself, why am I doing this? I shouldn't be doing. I should be doing the the higher level stuff. And so we have to force ourselves force ourselves to do the leadership stuff. And we have to do the management stuff, but we have to force ourselves to continue to do the leadership stuff. Here at Centenary, you know, we were engaged in a strategic planning process. And when the pandemic hit, um, I, was, I was wondering, well, should we stop with the strategic planning uh, and focus totally on, on, uh, on the pandemic? And we decided, as I think as a group, we decided, no, let's, let's keep the strategic process going, but let's add an objective to, to uh, operate in a post-pandemic environment, which would mean then, because we were already started the pandemic, and also into the future. And so we've added, uh, we've added the, uh, the, the, that objective uh, to, to our strategic plan with about uh, 15 uh, key performance indicators on that. So I think you've got to do that. The other danger I think that, that you have um, in, in, a, in a crisis uh, is not delegating. Uh, it, it, sometimes, if you when the pressure's on and, and, and the stakes are high and, and you feel like it's all on you, there's a tendency to say, "I'll do it," uh, the, the, and I won't delegate. And that's probably one of the worst things that that a leader can do. Uh, and I think a lot of us are guilty of that uh, because you do need that help. Not only do you need that help, but the folks that you would be normally delegating to need to be doing something, and they need to be doing that too, something that's important, and they will help and figure it out probably in better ways than you can if, if you just uh, do that. So those are those are some things that, that uh, would go on there. That's great, thank you. Can you elaborate on how you support the key players and the staff during times of crisis? Well, I, I think, first of all, Again, through communication and clarity, and 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 maybe helping, helping to uh, to keep it simple. Uh, you, you know, you, you don't need you don't need all kinds of complicated stuff uh, in, in a crisis. You've got plenty to deal with, and and the, the simpler you that you can help make that the the the, the more uh, 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 again clarity, the more the the the, the more uh, clear. You can make what the task is, how what needs to be done, and 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 again, keep it simple. Then people will be able to respond to that and, and do that, um, and, and and let them let let them figure out uh, in their own areas how that's that's going to be done, and then have them report back to you what what they're doing. And and when when I've done that, I've been delightfully surprised at, at what great ideas and and uh, approaches that that people have. I know that we couldn't. Uh, one thing that I've said since the very beginning of this is there's 6,000 colleges and universities in this country, and we're going about this 6,000 different ways. I don't always mean that as a bad thing. Uh, it sounds it sounds like I do most of the time, but but we're we're going about it in so many different ways that think of all of the different all of the creativity that's coming out of that. But the other part of it is to, is to you've heard this expression never waste a good crisis. Um, we are learning stuff from 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 our operations in a post-pandemic environment. That that we are learning, for example, this activity that we're doing now. We're doing it in a way we wouldn't have done before. Uh, we're we're making people available to each other that we we hadn't thought of before. We're looking at ways of operating parts of the institution. 
uh, remotely or, or semi-remotely or, you know, hybrid fashion that we never thought of before. Diff all kinds of, you know, different things. Uh, uh, the, 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 some of the, some of the uh, IT equipment that we've, we've put into the classroom, but we should have had that before. Some of the opportunities for a student that, that is either an athlete on a, going on a trip uh, and, and can attend class uh, while on the bus uh, you, you know, something that we never thought of before. Uh, so, so a lot of these things, I think we're going to come out on the other side of this uh, with, uh, with, with uh, new ways of looking at, new ways of thinking about how do we do our, how do we accomplish our mission as a university. That's a great way to look at a crisis as an opportunity as well. Would you say that's your greatest lesson learned as a leader going through a crisis or are there others that you've experienced and applied? Uh, no, I, th I think that's that, that's probably one of the one of the big ones is is that you know I mean it's been that saying's been around forever that the you know the, the opportunity in the crisis but uh, it's really borne itself out uh, during this one all the the, the the learning that we've had to do uh, and and another part of that is to tr is to trust you know trust uh, trust your instincts. Uh, that that they're probably right. They're probably telling you something for a reason. And trust the subordinates. Trust trust the, the folks that you work with. That that they will come up with with good and creative uh, ways. If 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 the leader can if the leader can present the problem uh, or at least or at least open up the the space to talk about the problem, then uh, that then the 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 rest of the team can come together and and come up with uh, with with absolutely uh, creative solutions. And and. You look at all the stuff that we've been uh, that we've been uh, uh, talking about uh, during the uh, during the pandemic, and and all the the you know just the terms that we never even used before, uh, and and now are are, are commonplace. I was uh, you know I, I saw a bunch of those that I you know just came together for me, uh, and I'm going oh my gosh you know a year and a half ago who knew any of this stuff? Who 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 ever thought about pooled saliva testing or uh, you know any, any of the kinds of things that that we've done and and that that along that way. So uh, it's it's also you know one other thing is 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 this uh, you know I, I've talked to so many uh, you know students uh, and, and employees and so forth about uh, about you know their concerns during this time and it's it's really opened my eyes and it really reminded me that as a leader you have to you have to be able to understand what's going on in in the hearts and the minds of your of the folks that work in your organization, because it really helps you then, I think, make make better decisions later on. That is great. Thank you so much. My last question, any common pitfalls that um, we should avoid in, in leading through crisis? Well, I think I think not delegating. I think I think uh, trying to trying to take it all on yourself. Uh, I, I, I saw that in my military career sometimes when when, you know, you know, you put too much pressure on somebody, or or you 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 don't try to you know help them out, or don't try to do that, and it, it, it it's to disastrous results. And I think that that could be one of the big things that would uh, that would be a big big pitfall would be not uh, uh, not letting other leaders lead. I mean, that's 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 why they're there. That's that's how how you get a strong organization, and that's how you build an organization that will last you know beyond your time. Great, thank you so much, Dr. Murphy. And, and this concludes our time this evening, and it was certainly very informative and inspiring, and we want to thank WNTI. We especially want to thank our special guest, President Murphy, for his time today and sharing his insight, his experience, and certainly his leadership of our university. So thank you all, and have a good evening. 
Let me just add, thank you very much to uh, our doctoral students and our guest, Dr. Murphy. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, you've been listening to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University.